Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is Matt Zemek. Uh, Sakeb Ali is producing this episode, but uh, uh, I'm going to give Sakeb a podcast off because he's been working really hard on, on this podcast uh, recently. I've been dealing with a lot of other sports writing responsibilities. Just want to you know put that up front for the record. If you haven't been seeing me on tennis Twitter, it's just because I have a lot of work to do uh, that I get paid for. Uh, and, you know, tennis with an accent, uh, I don't get a salary for it. Like I still like to contribute to it, but, um, you know, it's just a different dynamic and, uh, definitely, you know, Sakib and I are all in on 2023, just in case anyone's wondering about that. And so anyway, I, Sakib has been carrying a, a big load. I wanted to give him a podcast off and, uh, join our guest and in, in, in-house analyst here at TWAA, Mert Ertunga, the coach. Uh, for insights on the WTA finals, uh, also the Carlos Alcaraz injury, the big Holger Runa uh, run in, at Bercy in, in Paris, and other items of interest. So, Mert, welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. It's great to have you back. And I think that, you know, the, the main story th- this week, the WTA finals and Iga Sviantek roaring through the the, the round-robin portion but then getting stopped by Arena Sabalenka and really Mert, I mean, Caroline Garcia won it, but just the fact that Caro Garcia and also Sabalenka uh, both made the final, it would certainly seem to set up a huge 2023 for both women that, you know, after all that they've done, they, they've checked a lot of boxes in their careers. There's only one thing left and that is to make a major final which which neither has done, and then of course you can't win a major uh, uh, final if you don't get there first. Like that is obviously a top of line goal for both next season. And I guess Mert, I mean, as as we review the WTA finals, let's just start though with that particular point. Like if if Garcia and Sabalenka don't at least make a major final in 2023, how should we view that, and how how? Just how big a year is this going to be for, for, for those two uh, professionals? Um, I think if you base um, Sabalenka and um, Garcia's uh, success rate just on the fact, that, uh, just on whether they make a final in in a major in twenty in twenty three or not, um, I think it's a little bit unfair. Because there are also a lot of players who have who have who have not been on the circuit for the last uh, two or three months or parts of this year, who are excellent players for for a variety of reasons. They have not been on the circuit consistently, and 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 we're adding to the mix not just the eight players that we saw at the WTA finals, but also uh, perhaps another six or seven who could possibly be a finalist in a. Um, in majors, so no, I don't think it's uh, it's it's as clean cut as that. In other words, we, I I can't really say if Sabalenka plays uh, two more semifinals in majors in 2023 and two quarterfinals in the two other majors. I can't I can't possibly dismiss that as as an unsuccessful year simply because she didn't reach a final in the major. Because uh, w- once again, um, 
although the, the eight players that we saw at WTA finals are the elite eight players for now, WTA has uh, WTA's uh, pool of talent is, is more vast than just these eight players. It's just that there's a, probably another cluster of six, seven, eight players. We can name, name, name names if you want to, but uh, we all know who they are, who, you know, given it 2023 free of injury or without any uh, off-court distractions, uh, they could easily be in next year's WTA finals uh, where they're, they're reaching the final and maybe they're in the final of a major. Keep in mind that only three women from this year's field of uh, WTA finals were in WTA finals in 2021. So it's, uh, I think, reaching to, to basing uh, this, your season's success on whether you reach a final in a major or not is, uh, is a harsh uh, goalpost. Okay. I think a natural uh, question that a lot of tem- tennis fans are taking away from the WTA finals is that, you know, one year ago in Guadalajara, we saw Contivate, Bedosa, and Muguruza uh, you know, all do extremely well at that tournament, and they didn't generally back it up exactly. in 2022. So with Garcia and Sabalenka making the final, how, does this feel different? Does this feel the same? Compare, contrast uh, th- those two uh, seasons, those two clusters of players. Does this feel different from last year in Guadalajara? Uh, uh, no, I don't think so, Matt. I think, it, it, we, uh, you know, it, it is a possibility that what repeated in the beginning of 2022 for those players could uh, there's a possibility that it, that it repeats again for the for the group of players this year from the WTA finals in the beginning of 2023 uh you know play like take a player like Pegula or uh, Garcia or uh, or Sabalenka for example who did well here at the tournament and who have been doing well late in the season it is possible that when next year when next year begins Australian Open and then the hardcore season followed by the by clay court season. It is possible that they don't get the results. And all of a sudden, what happened this week and the couple of weeks before that seemed like a distant memory. And, and uh, you know, the name that you mentioned, and it cultivate is a, is a perfect example of that. And uh, and also uh, Muguruza for that matter. But uh, again, you know, the all five of those names were not even in the uh, in the WTA finals this year. So. Uh, uh, yeah, it is possible, and 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 it's actually possible on on the men's side too. I know we're talking about WTA finals, but uh, a lot of times these players who do well in this late part of the season uh, sometimes you know go have a down period in the beginning of the next season. And yes, it is possible. Let's wait and see because uh, you know I guess my question would be, you know, for example, take Garcia. Garcia finished the year ranked number four in 2017, I believe. And then she had the, she had a period of of time where she was she just didn't back it up, you know. Now she's now she entered this year as you know, um, well outside top fifty, and uh, and look where she is now. So ups and downs are are very possible, and they have been happening. In fact, I would argue that it's the trend over the last three or four years. So I would I would be cautious in uh, in uh, declaring too high a goal for any of the players that did well here in the WTA finals or in the, um, in the, uh, in the, in the weeks leading up to it. I would say that they should, uh, I would say that 
definitely, you know, reaching a major final or winning a major title should be on the horizon, something that they should shoot for. And I would, and if they reach that goal, it would be a very successful season, but I'm not sure that it would necessarily be an unsuccessful season if they don't reach a major, of course, depending on what they've done, uh, you know, if they didn't reach a major, did they still win titles? Were they still top five, top 10, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you know, so the early November, like this is the time of year to discuss these kinds of things, Mert. Uh, and so, you know, Man, a natural, you know, a natural, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, no, I was, what I was going to say is another thing that, that another topic that keeps coming up. And this is when you see, um, why sometimes you have to take a, a, the larger context uh, into question. You know, we, we often hear the season's too long. You know, it should, we should stop beginning of October. Uh, we should have a full three months off, et cetera, et cetera. And my answer to that is you need to, you need to look, and look, at, look and see what's happening every year, late August, September, and October both on the women's and men's circuit and question whether you want to take away the point opportunities from the players who do well at this time of the year. It's easy for, uh, for, for a clay court specialist to, um, to say, well, we should, you know, we should stop the season. We should have three months off. The season's too long. We should stop it in, in, in October. Well, what would that clay court specialist say if we, if we were to say, okay, let's, let's have those three months off in March, April, and May. I'm just saying that metaphorically. Of course, there's the French Open, so that's not going to happen. But but I I just think that you know there are players who depend on this. Uh, what would Holger Rune think now if the season were to if the season stopped at uh, in the beginning of October, for example, on the men's side? Or what would Anik Kontaveit think? Or what would she have thought if the if the season on the women's side last year f- finished at the end of September? So, you know, I think this, 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 uh, the length of the season discussion is sometimes short-sighted and, uh, and you need to take into consideration the, the players like, just like wh- what we just saw, you know, players like Pagula and Garcia who, are, who, who have used that opportunity to move up the rankings. Garcia would have never finished the year ranked number four had it not been for this late run. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, it should be up to the player to, to gauge themselves and, and schedule tournaments such that they have the necessary breaks, but no opportunity should be taken away from, a, from, a, from other players. Well said, Mert, as usual, uh, the, the question I was going to come in with, you know, because that really, you know, early November, this is the time to discuss these kinds of things. You know, when you evaluate players in terms of, you know, we, we often see players that have a big first half of the year and then they get to Wimbledon in the grass. And, you know, if they've been doing well on both hard courts and especially clay, they get to Wimbledon on the grass. They don't do well. And then the, the air often goes out of the balloon. The second half, you know, kind of dissipates. Uh, and then other other players, you know, struggle on clay and Wimbledon can be where they catch fire or, you know, in Garcia's case, like, exactly. you know, at the Poland Open. It was in post Wimbledon clay where her season really began to take off. She bagged some high end uh, victories. So we often see players fall into this bracket of, you know, they're either a first half of the year player or they're a second half of the year player. You know, so like. And and there are also those who are injured, say, January to May. 
and they need the, you know they need the, the the august to october to november time period to make up for the points. Sure. sorry matt i didn't mean to interrupt you there but yeah. no that's an that's yeah. an excellent point you can always interrupt me especially because i know you're always going to say something good when you do interrupt me so that that adds <laughs> to the broadcast um but like when you look at players and when you evaluate them like how do you like are, are there certain measuring sticks that you look for in terms of okay this is when i can tell that a player has transcended that first half versus second half reality and is a consistent year-round player now like with Barty and Sviantek like that's easy that we don't really need to even question that a player put in a complete year on the various surfaces what you know when you kind of uh, weigh how complete an, a, a year-round player is men or women what are the kind of the things that you're looking for when do you when do you say to yourself, okay, that player has transcended this first half, second half reality and is really consistent at a higher level? Is it, is it things about their game and their adaptability across surfaces that you're focused on? Is it just like specific numbers or levels of results? Is it another metric that you're looking for when you evaluate players in terms of transcending this first half, second half uh, reality? Yeah, a couple of things first. You know, with, uh, let me start by saying something that sound that may sound like it has nothing to do with you with your question, but I will eventually tie it tie it to 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 your question. You know, when when we use terms like X Y Z is a top ten player or X Y Z is a top fifty player, we have to be careful in the sense that if they've entered, you know, top fifty at one point in their career, but they've spent most of their career between fifty and one hundred. To me, that's not a top 50 player. This came up on, on a Twitter discussion a couple of weeks back. But, you know, that player may have been a former t- top 50 player. And uh, and at one point in their career, they may have entered the top 50. But if they've spent eight months in top 50, but spent seven years between 50 and one, 100, to me, that's a top 100 player in in, in terms of, uh, of, of, of explanation. So... How am I going to tie that into your question? One of the things that I look for in a, in a player like that is, okay, have they reached, for example, Holger Rune now just reached top 10, correct? I would like to see how long he's going to hang around or even move up in this range. It doesn't have to be top 10, but I'm talking, you know, 10 to 15 or 5 to 10, say from number 5 to number 15. Is he going to be able to stay in this range right here? throughout 2023 if he does and we move into 2024 while he's still top 10 or number 12 or number five or even number three to me at that point that's someone that has transcended the 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 status of a player who made a quick rise he's no longer in that quick rising player category he's in the established category so sustainability at a at a level in the rankings for me is very important. You know, Gilles Simon retired. And, and this is how this discussion started the other day on Twitter. It was through Gilles Simon, you know, Gilles Simon retired. And would you call him a top 10 player when you look at his career? Cause he did enter the top 10 and he played the ATP finals, but uh, he was only top 10 for about a year in his career, but he did stay top 30 throughout, you know, over a decade almost and top 20 for most of that decade. I'd call him a top 20 player, for example. So, you know, and, and to me, that's, the, you know, that's how you transcend your previous status. 
And the second thing is, you know, that would be one thing, consistency and sustainability in, in, this, in the spot in the rankings. And the next one would be is how, how you, well you perform in extended tournament weeks. In other words, if you, if you reach the semifinal one week, you go out the next week, do you fade away in the first round, second round, or are you able to have another, are you able to have another good tournament? And maybe then you have a week off and you play a major and you can make it to the second week. In other words, resistance of the body, you know, resist, physical resistance to extended weeks and extended weeks that come in a row or they, they come continuously in a matter of three or four months. If, if a player can make it through that type of uh, grueling period and remain injury-free and finish, the, finish a full season, to me, that's a player who's also physically ready for the challenge. And I think those are the ingredients needed to uh, to um, to move to the next level within the context of uh, what you asked. All right. Well, we'll I'm going to get back to the WTA final specifically in a little bit. But like what you've just said really leads to a couple really interesting case studies, one on each tour, uh, just in light of all the things that you said. So let's let's start with the women. Maria Sakari, you know, she was in the WTA finals, but no one would really say, I don't think that she had an especially strong year. Um, but she was, she was in the WTA finals because, you know, the players below her weren't able to make enough of an upward move. And you also had, of course, Contivate uh, and, and Bedosa, you know, having losing points. Um, so you know, like a number of factors contributed to Sakari still being able uh, to make the WTA finals. So on one level, Mert, she did sustain in terms of, you know, her ranking. It was still yes. uh, still top 10, but no one would say that she had an, an especially impressive year. So just before we deal, deal with the other case study that I'm interested in, just what about what about Sakri in terms of the, that, you know, larger picture that you outlined in terms of sustainability? Yeah, I think she's, to me, Sakari at this point is a, is a bona fide top 10 player. She may only have one uh, title, but uh, I think her results are consistent enough, and and uh, the, consistent enough in the in terms of you know not losing early, not too many ups and downs, and uh, she you know she's she made her. I think she became top thirty already four five years ago, and she consistently gets top ten wins. I think she's been getting top ten wins for multiple top ten wins per year. I don't know, but since since 2018, 19 or so. And, uh, and then she, you know, she's been top 20 for a good three years now. I think she, I think she's, she was top 20 at the end of 2019 or beginning 2020. And uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a player who's been in top 20 for about three years. And I think it was last year that she got into top 10 and here we are at the end of 2022 and she's still top 10. So for me, yes, that's a player that deserved that's in top 10 and deservedly so and since eight players make it to um, to the WTA finals, I don't think it's uh, by a string of uh, uh, lucky events that she made it to the to the WTA finals. I think that's a well deserved uh, WTA final appearance. And uh, the, the 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 knock on her is that she doesn't have many titles that she can, and because she doesn't have titles or she loses in the finals or semifinals a lot, there is this knock on her that she just cannot win the big one. But that doesn't mean that she doesn't belong in the top eight. All right. Now let's do the case study on the men's side along the lines, again, of what you were talking about earlier with, you know, your, the body's resistance to, you know, stacking together 
not just results, but doing it each week, you know, going deep one week, then coming back the very next week in a different city and also going deep. So that's what Felix Oje Aliasim uh, has done in this uh, indoor uh, fall season. Uh, so evaluate how this run feels, you know, along the lines of what we talked about with second half players, you know, Contivate Bedosa in 2021, Garcia Sabalenka 2022. What about Felix's second half of 2022? How, what what does this uh, make you think in terms of what's possible for him and what's likely for him in 2023 and some of the goals that he and his team should be setting forth next year? Well, I think um, the 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 thing about a player like Oger Aliassim is that you know from year to year you see a steady rise in the results, in the rankings, and in in his athleticism, his the improvement in his strokes. And also his composure on the court. So um, I think there, you know, it's one of, we we usually tell, you know, we Matt we tell parent, parents of competitive uh, young tennis players that you know don't expect a linear rise. This is not uh, you know you don't just keep getting better and better, better and better in a linear fashion. You're going to have some ups and downs, and you have to learn to to be patient through those. But uh, uh, to me, Felix Felix Ogerelia seems rise is as uh, linear as it gets. In other words, he's doing better and better every year. Although, if you wanted to take a single category of results, you know, if you wanted to say, okay, well, let's look at how he does in the majors. Well, you you know, you you might find that uh, I think he made the semifinals of Wim- no U.S. Open last year, if I'm correct. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, th- this year he didn't make the semifinals in any tournament in any of the majors, but he does have better results, you know, and he does have a quarterfinal appearance, I think in Australian open. Did he make the quarterfinals in French? He uh, did he make the second week. Okay, he made the he second made, week. Yeah. He made the second week. So that's still not bad. And, no. uh, but, but he's, but he also had the, you know, the, the, the titles this year that he finally, you know, he got that, that monkey off his back. And as we saw the last uh, couple of weeks here, he's been playing up a storm. So this is a player, in my opinion, who, who you know, to, to establish, um, he's a little bit like, like Holger Rune's case. In other words, he's now a top 10 potential player. But, uh, but let's see. Let's see what happens in 2023. Is he going to be able to back it up? Because we've had um, examples of men's players who do, who, who do very well in Paris and then in uh, ATP finals, but then who really struggle the year after. And, uh, I, you know, four or five names come immediately to my mind. But uh, but let's see what happens to Oger Eliasim in this sense, in the same way that uh, we'd like we need to see what happens to Holger Rune in, 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 in this context. If uh, if, you know, I, I'd be able to answer this question better in 2020 by by September 2023, if Oger Eliasim has not been injured. Uh, he, if he's playing, he's playing a steady flow of tournaments where he's going late in the late rounds towards the weekend. And, uh, he's still top 10 by the time September comes around, he's in top 10, uh, to me. Yes. He's a, he's a bona fide top 10 player then. All right. One more non WTA finals question before I trace back to that uh, event in Dallas over, over the past week. Um, you know, when you're, I mean, you know, you have plenty of experience as a coach when you, are thinking about, you know, doing the off season training and, and, and how much practice and attention to detail uh, you think a player needs in the off season, heading into the next tennis season. 
you know, do, wh what are the things that you weigh or balance in terms of how much work you give to the player versus, you know, taking the time off to decompress, you know, to get away from the sport for a little bit so that the per player is not just physically fresh, but also mentally fresh. Like when we consider someone like Felix, who's, you know, done a lot of heavy lifting over the past several weeks, and we compare that to any kind of player who, you know, hasn't really played that much in October, early November, you know, kind of, you know, really emptied the tank through the U.S. Open and then didn't have her very best stuff uh, after it. Like we could consider Ans Jabur in that regard uh, as, as one example. Um, like, do you, as a coach, do you vary the off-season program in terms of how much tennis that that player played, uh, you know, after the U.S. Open late in the season? Or do you think it's important to have just kind of a consistent off-season uh, outlook, provided that the player is healthy, of course, uh, no matter what the results, uh, the flow of results is throughout the calendar year? If, if a player has not been injured, if a player, if the player had a, had a consistent year, in other words, they were able to play a regular schedule, regular tournament, practice, et cetera, et cetera. In that case, yes, the player deserves a break, you know, mental and physical break. Uh, so some players like to do that a few days only. Some players would like to do it a week. There are some who maybe just, you know, will not touch a racket, touch the racket or come near a tennis court for two weeks even. Uh, and then there are some others who will take two weeks off, but who will go out and hit for fun for, you know, every other day for about 30 minutes, just so they have the feel in their arms, not, you know, they, they don't want the, the, the feeling of the hitting a tennis ball, abandoning their arms by not touching it for two weeks. Anyway, these are just very uh, varieties of them. But if, but if the player had, had, a, had a serious injury and uh, actually had to lay, you know, lay down, uh, in a room or in some uh, hospital for a long time or, 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 you know, going through a heavy injury where they don't do anything for a large chunk of uh, time and then followed by rehab, then yes, during what other players would call off season, that player may consider actually, you know, taking only a few days off after the last couple of tournaments, if they get to play tournaments, of course, that year. And they use the rest of the time to get ready, starting with, of course, uh, strength and conditioning followed by some on-court time and then may you know making the on-court time more intense this could this could take weeks you know this could take three weeks five weeks seven weeks depending on the on the player and what kind of recovery they need and in that case you definitely need to consult with uh, with a strength and conditioning coach and also a, a, a doctor you know uh, specializes in uh, in athletic injuries but uh, yeah, that that would be how I would answer your question. It's, it it all but, depends on the on the player. Well, let me ask a quick follow up. You know, if the player says, "Hey, M Coach Mert, I, you know, I want to take you know a six seven weeks off and just completely get away from tennis," like should that kind of uh, response just be automatically agreed to, or does a coach have a responsibility or a need to say? you know, okay, maybe we need to compromise here. Maybe you take four or five weeks off, but you know what? There's this one flaw in your game and we really need to spend just like a week on the practice court in the off season dealing with this. Like, so as a coach, do you just, you know, allow the player to do what he or she wants? Or is it important for a coach to kind of, you know, say, not necessarily I disagree, but well, we do need to work on this and have you prepared for the start of the next season. How, how does that kind of, uh, 
wane of tensions go for a coach in, in a relationship with a player as we head into the offseason? Yeah, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of another co- or, 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 or of other coaches, but in my case, I would, I would be, that, that would be, I would question that. So six or seven weeks off. This, this sounds more like uh, the player has some sort of issues that, they, that uh, he or she has to straighten out in, in, their, in their life. Um, I, I, I don't think taking six or seven weeks off is healthy at all if, if a player wants to stay competitive. That's just too long. What what's what's what do you think is the right is generally the right balance or standard to set? I mean, for for during the off, off season, for an off yes. season, yeah, I would I would say max for me it would be maximum two weeks maximum. Oh, okay. So I would I would not even feel comfortable with that to be honest with you. But so, the, you know, so, that's again, I don't want to speak on behalf of sure other coaches. So sure. for me, that'd be two weeks um, maximum. I mean, not maximum. I would actually I prefer less than that. But six or seven weeks, there's, there's something wrong with that. I think I think most coaches okay. would not. Uh, most coaches would question the reasoning behind that, or they okay. would simply not. Uh, they would simply not go for it. Hey, good, it's good to get this perspective. It's why we have you on the show. All right, let's. I mean, let's get know, back. If, it depends if if a if a player is having personal issues, family related yeah, issues, and and sure. you as a coach are aware of that. Yeah, and uh, they've been having problems, and they say, "Look, I need six or I need a couple of months off." That's a different. That's a different context. Yep. Sure. You know, I, I took your question as you're asking, like in terms of off season. Of course, you know, of yeah. course, just tennis focused. Absolutely. All right, let's get back to the WTA finals. So, you know, we have Garcia and Sabalenka making the final with Garcia winning. Just, did you notice thing? What did you notice in terms of uh, any of the players' games? Uh, you know, in terms of adjustments they've made or or evolutionary strides that you see in their games, which give you the idea that hey this is a different player from uh what we saw earlier in the year or at a previous point in their career just you know who who really evolved in your mind at this tournament i mean garcia won and you know obviously she she had a, a really good u.s open that you know already showed her evolution maybe this was just you know kind of a, a reinforcement of what happened at the u.s open did another player evolve more than, than she did at this tournament. Uh, how how would you tackle that particular question? Just in terms of, you know, players evolving and and adding more to their game, just becoming more complete players. What did you see over the past week in Dallas? Yeah, I think I'll, I'm I'm going to go with Sabalenka to to uh, to give an example to answer your question. Uh, I think she's you know I've seen uh, Sabalenka use drop shots more slice more she even sliced some forehands which it's not that she's never done it before but very rarely but in this but but in this uh during this tournament i saw her use those uh variety of shots with a purpose in other words as part of the uh as part of her tactics and as part of her um how should i put this changing the pace type of tactics depending on the player that she plays against also um her serve has improved you know and uh she, she, she's, uh, all, you know, everybody, everybody's going to remind me, I'm sure, of the two double faults that she made in the finals in the first set. But uh, she's also, you know, she's all, she also had a very good serving day overall in the final and in some of the, and in some of the matches leading up to the final. I think she's serving better. Her second serve uh, has more variety on it. So yes, she, her game to me has evolved from a year or two ago which is not that surprising. She's a very hard worker. 
if Garcia is a much better player now, but not necessarily because she's doing anything differently, but she's she's just she's just become more comfortable with the with the game style that she has. You know, this taking the returns early, um, a meter or two inside the baseline first and second serve this is something that she's been doing for since 2012 13 14 the this is nothing new so to be able to pull that off you need time and uh you know if 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 a player sees that uh now and says oh, okay let me try that it's not gonna it's not gonna you know bear fruits immediately it's gonna take a long time so you have to be patient with with something like that but she's been doing it for a long time i think garcia has improved her volleys tremendously she's got uh she's got good um uh ownership of the, of the, of the net play in general her first serve is uh is big you know she's served more aces than anyone else in the WTA tour this year uh so those are the ones that that come to my mind and i think sakari is an excellent uh, example emblematic example of how hard work you know bears fruits i mean she's she's uh, this is one of the hardest workers on the tour and uh, and she's uh, she deserves the you know her upward trend uh, that that she's enjoyed over the last three years also. So among the non Sviantec players uh, that you saw at the WTA finals, which one do you think is in the best position to have a big twenty twenty three? Now you know we saw Ans Jabur, you know, really I think mark herself as the number two, but you know is is Jabur like? The, the the clear number two a notch above the rest of the WTA heading into 2023 or do you think that someone like Pagula you know who made a lot of quarterfinals and semifinals this past season and might be ready to take the next step is it someone else like Kutsakari after you know kind of a, a a bumpy ride at points at various stages in 2022 you know maybe she puts it all together next year in much the same way that you know Sviantek made a lot of fourth rounds, but didn't make too many deep runs at a lot of uh, important tournaments in 2021. But she used those hard knocks to really put in a complete 2022 season. So, you know, and it could, or it could be someone else. What's what's your general overview of the non-Sviantec players at the WTA finals and which one might be best poised for a rise in 2023? Yeah, I would go with Ons Jaber and Maria Sakari. Uh, those two players, uh, to me, have the most potential to uh, to make a jump, even a further jump into 2023. They, they they have a complete game. They have good court sense. They're high IQ players. Uh, they they um, they have um, a, how do I say this? Like a kind of a full toolbox to work from. And uh, you know, it's just, in, my, in my opinion, those two are uh, are the ones that have that can do well in all surfaces, also. You know, and uh, and 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 they're good athletes. You know, Sakari is an excellent athlete, and Jaber has great anticipation. You know, so it's one of these things where she can just take a short backswing and direct the ball that's coming really hard uh, to her corner, all because she's already started moving that corner before even the other player swings at the ball. And uh, you know, these are these are players who've shown steady improvement over the last couple of years. I think they will continue to do so in 2023. All right, so we talked about non-Sviantec players uh, poised for a rise next year. Let's now talk about Iga Sviantec. You know, she didn't win the WTA Finals, but obviously looked great in the round robin. Sabalenka was able to stop her in the semis, a very impressive effort from Sabalenka to be able to pull that off. 
And I think uh, just in terms of sizing up Sriantec's season, and you know, obviously, I you know, this is a topic which merits like a fuller standalone set aside podcast. But uh, just in try in terms of trying to deal with Sriantec's season in a in one or two questions as opposed to a full show, I think I think one of the things that emerges more is that you know, since Serena Williams became a mom, you know. F- Five years ago, you know, like that marked the end of one particular period in tennis. And that was, you know, Serena being the dominant figure in the sport. And we've seen much more balance and parity since then from 2018 uh, and, and onward. And of course, Serena is now retired. Uh, so when we had, we had Barty last year and then we had Sviantec this year, you know, really establishing herself at the top. So, you know, great seasons to a certain extent everyone can identify when they see one and when we know that the Sriantec season is great we don't have to debate that but you know how great was it and and in light of what we saw from Barty in light of what we we saw on a much more extended basis from Serena you know it, it kind of stands out given that you know for a few years you know like 2018 through 2020 uh we didn't see you know dominant all season players you know we saw Naomi Osaka dominate on hard courts but we didn't see like the complete multi-surface uh elite quality that that Barty delivered last year in which Fiontech delivered on hard courts and clay uh this year so with that in mind just what are your overall impressions in terms of the the, the caliber of season Iga Fiontech just produced I think Fiontech's season has a lot to do with confidence and uh, and and belief uh, more than just a pure improvement in her play, uh, and that doesn't that, that makes it sound as if I'm not appreciative of how much she has improved. That's not at all. Uh, that's that is not what I mean at all. Shiontek is uh, playing a, a unique brand of tennis that uh, th- that she was already playing better than anyone else a couple of years back, and now she has she has improved even by her own standards. She's hitting the ball harder. She's taking the ball earlier. She's relentless at hitting the corners. You know, there are a lot of hard hitters in, in, in WTA, um, Matt, but but how many of them hit with the coin-like precision to from one corner to the other, one corner to the other, shot after shot, game after game, continuously? And it's just, it's, it's just you know, a, a flow of steady, uh, high octane shots coming with topspin, with heavy topspin on them, that land in just inside the baseline. And you know, this these are not just flat balls coming at you without angles. She can hit the angles too. She's hitting the sidelines, close to the sidelines a lot. So I would uh, characterize Shuantek's uh, game as unique uh, in that sense. Uh, it, it's not the same as as most other players. And uh, and she does that so well that uh, that she actually blows her opponents out. And you know we we seem to think okay, she, you know she's she's at another level. She has to come back down to earth. Well, it happened. She came down to earth against uh, against Sabalenka in the third set. I don't think anybody believed that at the end of the second set when she won the second set six two that Shuantek was not going to win that match. You know, hardly any only. Uh, I would say a small percentage of, uh, of, uh, of of viewers probably still thought that Sabalenka was going to win that third set. But, you know, she starts the third set. She makes some uncharacteristic errors. 
And her body language, in my opinion, went uncharacteristically, uncharacteristically uh, subdued. And, uh, and Sabalenka ended up winning. It can happen. But uh, her brand of tennis is uh, very valid for dominating the women's game now. And the reason why uh, my, I, I emphasize now, it's because, and this is not to take away from uh, Shuantek's uh, success. But she had, but these last year, this last year and a half, or these last two years, also correspond to a sequence or series of of happenings where some players that looked really promising, and when I say some, I don't mean just two or three, but a group of players that looked really promising to to settle at the top of the game back in 2019, for one reason or another, are not there now, and they have either uh, faded away or they have either just dropped down in rankings or they've suffered from long-term injuries or other problems, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and Shionte kind of is the only one from back then who kept up her end of the bargain. And that's one of the reasons also why she's dominating now. So there's a little bit of luck factor here in her favor, but the, you know, I don't want to take away anything from the improvement in her game though. She might've still been dominating Today or this year, she might have still dominated had those players still been around, but we don't know that. And it would certainly be a great gift to all of us if we did see Iga Sviantek play Naomi Osaka and or Bianca Andrescu in big stage matches. Exactly, and you know, uh, Barty Barty retired. You know, so yes. So there's you know there's a whole you know there's a whole slew of players that you know you even have players like uh, Jennifer Brady or Sofia Cannon. Yes. You know, the, Carolina can, Mukova. We, yeah, exactly. We can go on and on and on. You know, the, the, lots the, this, of this, lots of elite talent there. Yes. Yeah. Back in 2019, I really thought we were entering a period of five years where you, where WTA was going to be at the top with splendid rivalries that we haven't seen in 20 to 30 years, but it, it didn't happen. You know. Yeah. Well, hopefully that will happen in the next few years, as uh, you know, if Andrescu can recover physically and Osaka can you know recover holistically. Uh, be in a better mental place, um, you know, there is the, the chance that those rivalries could emerge and ignite. It would be great if it happened. All right, winding down, Mark, just a couple items left. You know, one thing that fans always mention a lot, and, you know, I, I don't like, I, I don't revel in the chance to ask this question, but I know that fans keep bringing it up. So just, I'm going to ask it just so we get something on on the record here. You know, Iga Sviantek raising her arms during points, like, like how big a, a deal is that? How Like how, is it something which really deserves a larger discussion or, uh, you know, is it just something that people should shrug off? No, that's, that's, that, that's, that should not happen. Mm -hmm. I also find, I also find that uh, unacceptable. You know, you should not wave your arms around like that, right. When your opponent is about to hit an overhead or a volley away. I don't know. You know, she said that she's going to try to stop it. She, uh, she does it by reflex, et cetera. But uh, to me, that's the same thing as, your opponent's getting ready to hit an overhead and you tap your feet hard to the ground just to distract them. It's the same thing. You know, so according to be honest with you, according to the rules, you know, when she does that, the referee sees that, that should, the point should be awarded to the other player. Yeah. And uh, like you so. know, the, 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 it's, it's just, it's just that simple. The reason why it's even being discussed is because it's the number one player in the world doing that. If the number yeah. 88 player in the world does that on a side court, at uh, at an ATP five five hundred event on a side court, and uh, nobody would even uh, you know discuss that. They would completely find the referee 
to be correct if the referee were, you know, if I'm so I'm sorry, the umpire to be correct if the umpire gave uh, took that point away from that player. But because it's uh, the number one player in the world doing it, it's it's become an issue of discussion. But no, that's unacceptable. You should not be waving your arm around like that because the sole purpose of that action is to distract your opponent. Yep. And I think that it's really that simple. Chair umpires just need to be award award the point to the opponent, and this this goes away. And I'm uh, saying that, that as a big fan of Igas you know, Yes, that's, that's just yes. the way it is. Right. Just it's but it's but it's within the chair umpire's ability to to nip this problem in the bud. All right. Final item, not a not a women's tennis item, but just you know the Carlos Alcaraz injury. Just your thoughts on that. Uh, like any any larger significance, meaning insight we should attach to it. I mean, you know it, how. How much of this, uh, I guess we should say, any concerns going into the Australian Open? Like, do you think this this might cloud his preparation, limit that, you know, from, from what you know of, of the injury and what you know of this kind of injury generally for other players? Just any any concerns about uh, Carlos's uh, Australian Open prep? Yeah, you know, the, Matt, I'm just going to say this very quickly with uh, – with, um with a little bit of reluctance because we we can't possibly know uh Alcaraz's uh condition you know physical condition since uh, better than we can't possibly know better than his team his team around him you know Juan Carlos Ferrero and um and um uh, Alberto Leto his uh, his physical trainer you know they they would know this the best but looking from the outside as an armchair uh, critic at this point, you know, for, on this issue, I find it risky. Uh, I, and I thought this two weeks ago, and I even mentioned it uh, in some discussion. I found it risky that Alcara scheduled to play Basel, Paris, and ATP finals. Well, he didn't sch- schedule ATP finals, but but we all knew he was going to make it because he won the U.S. Open and he's number one player in the world. So, you know, I, I thought that it would make sense for him to play Basel, rest or or not play Paris and play ATP finals or or play a you know pass on Basel, play uh, uh Paris and play ATP finals. To me, it would make more sense to play Basel, Paris off and play the ATP finals because he didn't play much anyway since the US Open. And and I'm assuming since winning the U.S. Open, he had a lot of uh, obligations to fulfill, et cetera. Maybe his uh, uh, you know concentration on tennis may not have been uh, uh, at its best, and and also he had the uh, injuries that that he was nursing, so he didn't play many tournaments or many matches anyway. And I just think that it's a heavy schedule, uh, con- considering that he's likely to go far in these draws, which which happened. You know, he he went far in Basel. And then here he is, you know, he goes to the what quarterfinals in the in Paris, and in, in, in a in an environment that's not his favorite, indoor hard, you know. Even if he did the, even if he didn't get injured here, and say he you know, lost in the quarters or semis in Paris, he would still go to go to the ATP finals and play minimum three matches against elite competition there too. I I just think that's risky, and. Um, and and here we are now in the situation where he is really injured. And uh, it, from his announcement, it looks like he's going to have to take six weeks off. And that cuts well into his, uh, you know, rest period, preseason period, preparation period for January and eventually for the Australian Open. So I think it's going to have an impact on that too. 
So that's that that that's just you know I I, I mean that's just me looking from the out, outside looking in. I'm sure uh, his team obviously thought otherwise, and he's got a he's got a great uh, physical trainer once again, like I said, and um, and a coach coaching team. So they probably looked at all the options and decided this. But to, to me, it just seemed weird that uh, he would schedule these three tournaments in a row. If anyone is on the outside looking in, we couldn't ask for anyone better than Mert Ertunga, one of the sharpest, uh, most observant uh, watchers of the tennis scene. You know, you give us insights that few others can match, Mert, and that's why we have you on. Mert, uh, hey, uh, you know, we're obviously, you know, you're going to be following the end of the tennis season, and uh, I will as well. But, uh, you know, want to just uh, thank you for all your contributions to tennis with an accent for yet another year. And we know that you've had you know, your own responsibilities in the tennis world, but you continue to give generously to Sakib and myself. So Mert, thank you, not just for appearing on this show, but for yet another year of your immense contributions to tennis with an accent. We're very grateful. Oh, Matt, no problem. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, it's not just contributing to tennis with an accent, but you guys are my friends, you know, Matt, Sakib and you. So and I'm you delighted. got to meet I'm Sakib delighted. this year, which was really, really special. <laughs> More than once. Yes. So it's, um, uh, it was it was it was great, and um, Sakib is the king, and I'm um, I'll, I'm delighted to uh, to be able to help uh, ten, tennis with an accent. You are you are the best, and we love you dearly, and uh, and we just we just can't thank you enough. Thank you. All right, folks, that's the coach Mert Ertunga on another episode of the Tennis with an Accent podcast, and hey. Sakib's been recording some great podcasts. You want to check out his feed, S-A-Q-I-B-A, also the Accent underscore Tennis Twitter feed. Um, you know, he's been talking to Alex Bruskin of Cracked Rackets and the, the, the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, uh, various other podcasts. He has some other guests lined up as well that you're going to love in terms of like an ATP Finals preview in Turin. Uh, and then Sakib and I are going to you know, wrap up the tennis season uh, once the ATP finals end. So lots of good stuff already that you can find on Twitter and also on the web at Tennis with an Accent. Uh, and lots of great stuff coming up in the next few weeks. So this is Matt Zanuck for producer Sakib Ali. Thanking you for joining us with Merk Ertunga on the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast.